Good morning. I'm Anne Marie Slaughter. I'm the Dean of the Woodrow Wilson School, and I'm very proud to claim bo both Peter, B Peter Bell and Senator Bill Frist uh, as Woodrow Wilson School graduates. How do you introduce the Senate Majority Leader? Well, in many ways, uh, Peter Bell already has, uh, very eloquently and in ways that I will touch on. But I think I will actually begin uh, by introducing his family, uh, since Sen Senator Frist has called his family his foundation in life. So I would like to introduce his wife, Karen, uh, who spends much of her time in Washington raising awareness uh, of women's health issues, including breast cancer. And also his sons, uh, Harrison, who is in fact a freshman here at Princeton. Uh, <laughs> whom I will not embarrass further. And his sons, Jonathan and Brian, who attend the St. Albans School in Washington. Welcome all. We are here today to honor Senator Frist's career in public service, but specifically in his success in fulfilling Princeton's ideals of we're in the nation's service and in the service of all nations. I thought that I would spend my time this morning emphasizing the ways in which Senator Frist has succeeded in ways that are deeply consistent with the values that we all share. The means he has used to serve the public, the positions he has held, and the issues he has chosen. First, the means he has used. Senator Frist has spent his career doing things and then writing about them. He has written four books about what he has done. This means he has served not only through the political process, but through education. He started as a pioneering transplant surgeon, performing over 150 heart and lung transplant procedures, including the first lung transplant and the first pediatric heart transplant. In that process, he wrote over 100 articles, chapters, and abstracts on medical research. He also co-authored his first book with a fellow physician for the medical community. It was called Grand Rounds in Transplantation. He was educating while he was doing. He then wrote another book called Transplant, a heart surgeon's account of the life and death dramas of new medicine. He wrote that book to dispel myths about heart transplants or organ transplants generally, and to encourage people to become organ donors, to supply the organs that are so vitally needed without which the technology cannot help. He lectured nationally on the subject, and he led the drive in Tennessee to restore the organ donor card to the back of the driver's license. Senator Frist continued this pattern when he turned to politics. After winning a hard-fought first campaign for the Senate in 1994, he was re-elected by an overwhelming majority, indeed the largest uh, margin of victory in a statewide election uh, in the history of Tennessee, six years later. He then wrote a third book, 
Tennessee Senators 1922 and 2002, Portraits of Leadership in a Century of Change. He distilled his experiences and his ideals of leadership in a way that would inspire and influence a rising generation of politicians. Most recently, as we all know, Senator Friss played a critical role as the only practicing uh, physician or the first practicing physician uh, in the Senate since 1928 uh, during the anthrax attacks of October 2001. He worked to pass landmark legislation uh, against bioterrorism and then, true to his form, wrote his fourth book, When Every Moment Counts, to help families prepare for future attacks. He donated all the profits from that book to a charity for preparedness in Tennessee. So doing and writing is a particular, writing and speaking and educating is a particular Princeton ideal of public service. But second, consider also the path Senator Frist has pursued, a classic combination of a private and a public career. Senator Frist spent his junior and senior years at the Woodrow Wilson School specializing in health care policy. He then had a summer internship with a veteran Tennessee congressman. That congressman told him, should he ever wish to pursue a career in politics, he should first excel in a profession other than politics. That he has certainly done, <laughs> as have so many uh, distinguished Princetonians, of course, uh, going back to Woodrow Wilson himself in the context of the Woodrow Wilson Prize, but all the way back uh, to James Madison. He has combined excellence and achievement in the private and public sector, and here he embodies a distinctively American conception that a government of the people should, not insi should insist on fluid boundaries between public servants and private citizens. Third, consider the issues that, that Senator Frist has chosen. They are not the conventional issues, they are the courageous issues. He has fought for health care issues across the board. He has fought to prepare this country against bioterrorist attacks, even when that job is so difficult that it is very easy to give up and to say, there's nothing really we can do. He does not believe that. He has fought that fight. We will thank him. He's also, most importantly, as Peter Bell has pointed out, he has pioneered the fight against HIV-AIDS. Senator Frist travels once a year to Africa to work as a doctor, actually operating and caring for patients, and to see firsthand the devastation that HIV-AIDS has wrought. In addition to the statistics that uh, Peter Bell gave us, in some countries in Africa, life expectancy has been halved. We are talking about life expectancies of 30 to 35. We grew up in an era where we have assumed life expectancies would increase. Now we're looking at life expectancies that are comparable to the Middle Ages. Senator Frist has led the fight to increase funding to fight what is truly a global scourge in which we must care for others as ourselves. When Mary Robinson was just at the Woodrow Wilson School, the former president of Ireland and the former high commissioner for human rights, she was asked to comment about evil. 
The questioner, I think, expected her to talk about the axis of evil. But instead, she said, the greatest evil in our world is poverty, a world in which we allow six million children to die and for AIDS to rage uh, unabated is a greater evil than any she could think of. A Princeton education is in part, as we all know, a moral education, an education in character and compassion. As Senator and now as Senate leader, Senator Frist has chosen to fight global evil on two fronts, bioterrorism and the, the scourge of HIV AIDS. Public service through doing and teaching, through writing and speaking, through combining excellence in the private and public sector, and leading the public with character, courage, and compassion. Fellow alumni and friends, I give you Senator Bill Frist. Dean, Dean Slaughter, and let me say at the outset, it's an honor for, for me to be here today and, and to take a journey with you a little bit on, on some of my interest and to, and to really balance very much what I am to say on, on the previous uh, speaker, Peter Bell, who I think captured, really captured the challenges before us as an American people, but indeed an international people. It's a great pleasure for me to be here with my family, who Dean Slaughter so graciously recognized. It was in August, just several months ago, that I had the distinct pleasure that many of you in the room have had, and that is to load up my three boys, but especially this time Harrison and my wife in August, and make that drive to Princeton as a, a new era for me in my relationship to Princeton as a Princeton parent and to indeed drop Harrison off for his week at a, a, a freshman orientation program that many of you are familiar with now called Outdoor Action, a program that today has 800. <laughs> that has 800 people participating. And as when, when you come back to Princeton, you think all of us do it, and this is mainly alumni in the audience and students who are here today, but you come back and you think of what the place was like when you were here, and it dropped me back uh, about 30 years uh, where I and two juniors, two other juniors and a senior took 13 students in what was the first outdoor action program and to think that those 15 students now evolved into a week of 800 students who spend a week together introduced to this wonderful uh, place helps put things in perspective both that an idea whose time has come you don't realize at the time and I'll speak about another idea whose time hit me about then um, but also the growth, the vitality, the assimilation of when one has an idea of gathering this wonderful community together in terms of alumni, in terms of faculty, and in terms of, of students. If you turn back, actually from that time, the, the, that was 30 years ago, if you turn go back about three months before that 1973 trip that we took, about three months before that in April of, of uh, 1973, uh, Marvin Bressler, how many of you were taught by Marvin Bressler, <laughs> Professor Bressler, a number of you, 
issued a report by the Commission on the Future of the College. And in that report, 1973, that's when I was a junior here, it captured a lot of my experiences. And those big reports, does anybody ever read them? You never know. But I happened to glance through part of, of that report because, and I, and I wrote it down, 1973, April, the report on the Commission of the Future of College said, entering students arrive on campus as strangers in an unfamiliar universe. We all feel that. Little in the institutional structure, speaking of Princeton, provided for the freshman and sophomore years exposes a student to a sufficiently wide range of people, thoughts, values, and lifestyles. 1973, we've just gone co-ed, still sort of the entryway structures. And then the part of the report that, that really captured my imagination is this in the report. It reads, parochialism is the enemy of education and a well-appointed central facility would stand as an architectural testimony that Princeton is greater than the sum of its parts. All of a sudden, these little light bulbs started going off. A building that included, in 1973, this is after 200 years of not having such a facility, a building that included lounges, study areas, game rooms, a mail facility, dining and snack services, a coffee house, and at that time, most of you know we had a pub, a more authentic pub <laughs> might attract undergraduates who might otherwise not venture beyond their immediate circle. In the last sentence, a widely utilized center would help create the spirit of common membership in the same community. I, I mention that because it shows the importance of the family working together, of alumni, faculty, reports, especially undergraduates thinking, because out of that little seed, out of those sentences which were imprinted in my mind, and after that was cultivated, and it was affected in part because when I came here, I came from the South. None of my brothers or sisters were from here. I knew no alumni who had gone to Princeton, and I uh, didn't know any other students at all who came to Princeton. Nobody came from my school uh, at, at the time coming from the South. And that lack of a sense of community... I remember because I was very homesick every night for that first year that, that I was here. But that seed was planted, cultivated in part by being a young alumni trustee and hearing the trustees uh, uh, talk. We're gonna, someday we're going to do this thing, but every time the, the student center or campus center would get to the top, it would be pushed down below, some greater priority. And then 10 years as a charter trustee for in the 1990s and the cultivation of having Bill Bowen initially take my brother Tommy Frist who, who, at the end of the day, is responsible for this campus center here, he and his family. But the reason, and so many of you are here as alumni, but when, when Bill Bowen and Harold Shapiro literally walked, and my brother didn't go to school here, but for several days, hours and then days through this campus, painting a vision of what could be here with that architectural testimony 
and the cultivation and the involvement of alumni, now we can come back, and many of you as alumni have been back to go to a campus center that I think we can all be, be proud of. The students played a huge role in terms of the structure of that center, in terms of the planning, in terms of the layout. I have to mention that at least the architect because this marriage of the past and the dynamic future, historic past, I think is captured in that building. And the reality is not just a physical structure, but indeed a spiritual structure uh, as well. It's where Princeton can really come together in an informal way outside of the structure of classrooms. And as that Bressler Commission report on the future of the college 30 years ago, that, that turned a little light bulb off in my mind that our university is, and the quote was, greater than the sum of its parts. Today I, I, I want to focus on, on public policy specifically, and I want to talk about two issues. And, 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 and Peter Bell's comment captured one of the two issues that I want to talk about. It's an issue that in politics and when I go around the world and around this country and in every political campaign and even when I'm talking to the, the backwoods of Tennessee, I will talk about this issue, and Peter Bell captured it the most devastating human humanitarian crisis, your words, the most devastating humanitarian crisis of our times and possibly of all times. Those are the words you just heard from Peter Bell, and I want to come back to that. I would also like to talk a bit about public policy on a domestic issue which affects every single one of you in this room, every single one of you in this room and that is our, our health care security system for our seniors. But I'd be remiss if I didn't build a little bit on, on what Dean Slaughter said in her introduction, that is what Princeton made possible for me. How is majority leader now of the United States Senate, and all of you know it's, a, it's not a position that, that was a goal uh, for me, and it's not a position that I, I ran for. In, how does Princeton play there? What is that background? In January of this year, just two months ago, or at the beginning of, of last month, the mahogany nameplate on the door in the most historic part of the Capitol, which is where the majority leader's office is, it's a mahogany nameplate, and in gold letters, they put my name as they put all majority leaders' names when you take over office. And it says William H. Frist, comma, M.D., now, you kind of laugh, and that's exactly what the political pundits in Washington say. What is this MD business? The newspaper, people writing in the newspaper, MD, what's that have to do with being majority leader of the United States Senate? And it's interesting because it's done for a purpose. And it's not just my, my, it was in my Senate office as well. I did it there, to be honest with you, because my dad, who died about five years ago, uh, when he came to my office, he scratched his head and said, Bill Frist, why did you give up being the greatest of all things, and that's a doctor, to come to Washington, D.C.? And so he said, put M.D. You're a, you're a doctor. Put M.D. up there. So that's the real. So that's the real reason. But what it really says, and it says really what Dean Slaughter captured, the M.D. sends the signal of this concept of what I think has made our democracy great from, from the founding of this nation. And that is that we take real people 
who have had real jobs, yes, jobs outside of government, who bring the real experiences that, that Peter Bell talks about that you see, that you feel by doing other things, and taking that for a period of time, and it could be, you know, long time, it could be a short time, in my mind, is taking real people out of real jobs and allowing them to come and serve the country in the way like I am today in public service and make one's contribution. It's called the citizen legislator concept. What it really should send, I think, is that you don't have to be a career politician to engage in public service and to address the sort of issues that that we've talked about this morning and that I'll talk about shortly. It started with me here in, in, in Princeton University in, in this room for some classes, initially over at Holder Hall, but best symbolized by the fact that I'd run from Frick, chemistry class in Frick, over to the Woodrow Wilson Bowl and, and study international relations, and then go back to Frick. Or it might be geo in biology to learn about that little virus, that little tiny virus that's killing 23 million people. First of all, when I was here, it didn't exist. Oh, we didn't know it existed. That's how new this little 23-year-old virus is. Well, 1981, 20, whatever it is, 22-year-old virus uh, now that's killed 23 million people. Princeton allowed me and, in fact, encouraged me to do both tracks, to do science, basic science, medicine, healthcare, and to do the international relations, the economic policy, the exposure of social policy and politics, and to do them both, but also to integrate them. It's confusing to people like the, the William H. Frist Majority Leader, MD, merged together, but at the end of the day, it allows me to address things with a perspective that's just different. It's different for Washington, D.C. It's not better or worse, but it's different. It, it forces the conversation to enter a new realm. When people talk bioterrorism and the threat to your lives, if right now you were exposed to smallpox or anthrax or the plague or tularemia, that's what I've lived. And at the same time, I'm briefed in classified briefings that there are 12 to 15 nations in the world who have developed offensive biological weapons programs with those seven agents. Well, I'm blessed because my life has been spent in terms of studying the medicine and the public policy and the health care and the threat that is before us if 12 to 15 nations really have, which they have developed, the use of these weapons. And we are not unprepared, but underprepared as a nation. But we're getting there very quickly in terms of preparation. Public policy, United States Senator, now Majority Leader, is it different than being a heart surgeon, doing operations, doing transplants in the operating room? Not all that different. Both are healing, both involve patients, both involve taking calculated risk in terms of some boldness and some courage. Both involve listening, that individual patient. If you don't listen to that patient coming through the door in a very objective way, there's no way to make the diagnosis. Absolutely no way to make the diagnosis. Same thing in politics. You'll see when I, when I travel around the country, I'll spend a lot of time listening and taking notes. And again, I guess that started here, you know, in, in places like Alexander Hall here and, 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 and in Princeton. But both require listening. Both require accountability. And that's key. When you do a, and we see it play out in this tragedy, and it do. When, when a mistake is made, you're held accountable. And that surgeon stood up and has been, been held accountable. That happens in medicine every day. 
and you're held accountable when you transplant a heart or a lung or you fix the heart in a young man or a young woman, you're accountable. In politics, the accountability is not as, as natural as that. But my job in many ways is to reflect the accountability that must be instilled in politics broadly. And let me just add the other common theme of whether it's transplanting in, in the operating room or transplanting ideas on the floor of the United States Senate. It is a deep sense of humility, a deep sense of, of humility in the sense that our lives are governed not just by coincidence and our lives are not, are not controlled just by chance but that our lives are governed in large part by a divine providence. The HIV virus, 23 million people. Unknown when I was at Princeton, unknown when I was at Harvard Medical School, unknown when I was an intern or my two years of residency. Really, we figured it out in 1983. And at that point in time, we had no earthly idea the human travesty this 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 human destruction that this little tiny virus would cause 42 million people as peter bell mentioned now have that virus today nine out of ten people don't have it don't, don't know they have that virus today yet we have no cure we have no vaccine and for every one person that died in the last 20 years that we've known about this virus for every one person that died in the best of all worlds, even if we do everything right, two people will die. Can't really write the history book. Can't rewrite the history books. For every one person who died, two people in the best of all worlds. Why? Because even if we discover a vaccine, that's not going to be for the 40 million people now or the next probably 40 million people who don't get the vaccine. But it'll be for people on down the line. Africa. My love for Africa is, 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 is real. I spend at least one trip a year there working with, with people with HIV AIDS uh, as part of a medical mission team. But it's not just an African problem. It's a problem that is rolling across the Caribbean, that is rolling across India, that is rolling across China. The fastest growing rate is indeed in yet another country, that is Russia. 23 million dead. 60 million people more will likely die, 40 million in the next year. 40 million people have it today. What will the history books say when they look back upon 2003? Did we stand up or did we not? In January of last year, I was walking through the slums of, of uh, Arusha. And the slums, slums have a connotation in, in the United States of being sort of the bad part of town. The slums are just where people live in, in most of the world uh, today. And meet many different people, but the face of AIDS really came across to me to a woman by the name of Taboo. Taboo is 28 years old, walking through the slums, a mud hut, about 8 feet by 8 feet, tin roof. Many of you have seen outside Nairobi, Arusha, all over Africa, the, the sort of slums I'm talking about. Went in to see her, bright sun outside, dark inside this mud hut, but everything very clean, 8 feet by 8 feet. She lives there with her child, 11-year-old child, but she's 28 years old. I couldn't see coming in very much but I, in, in, the, in the room, but I did see this big smile. And as I got closer, I saw this sense of hope. But then as I got a little bit closer, I saw somebody that is thin, that is wasted, that is, is what in medic, medicine we call cachectic, 
that clearly was not going to live but another year. Her two younger children she sent off two weeks before to live with her mother across the, the slums on the other side of the slums, but pretty far, about a mile away, because she could physically no longer take care, care of them. And she told me the story. She was embarrassed. She was embarrassed because this little virus was killing her in part, but in truth it's because she had to send her children away because she physically could not take care of them. The next day she would leave her hut because she couldn't live any longer there to go join her mother. One week later, Taboo died. I mention that story because it's the face, and it's the face of, remember, it's the face of 40 million people uh, around the world today, but really more to paint that face because we know a lot about this little tiny virus. This is a little tiny virus. The naked eye can't see it. This is a little virus out there. We know a lot about it. Can't cure it. But we can treat it, we can prevent it, we can provide care, and we do know how to treat today. The key point to me is that only American leadership, only, and this is not set out of arrogance, this is set out of many of the things that, that Peter Bell talked about. We have to talk to the leaders in other countries and convince them, so no matter how much we care, unless the leaders of other countries care as well, we really can't do very much. So I say that only American leadership can people like Taboo, that face of AIDS, truly hope for a fuller happier, a more productive life. How have we responded as a nation up to now? Not, not terribly, not bad. In fact, we have a lot to be proud of as, as I look at what has been invested since I've been in the United States Senate. We started with about $150 million and we've increased eightfold to about $1.2 billion in 1999. But, in that steady progress, but with the president's announcement the other day at the State of the Union, he, he catapulted, he catapulted onto the world stage, not just the increase in $10 billion. Remember, we're spending $159 billion, $159 million now five years ago, and we've increased it up to about $1.2. He's talking about adding $10 billion. That's important. But what's even more important that the President of the United States, speaking for you, speaking for the American people, has demonstrated global leadership in opening the eyes to the world, to the devastation, to this greatest humanitarian crisis of our times and possibly of all times. It's the hope that Africa needs, it's the hope that all people with HIV need, people in India and, and China and, and Russia and uh, of around the world if America does continue to summon our moral courage to lead the fight against HIV AIDS we will literally we will literally change the course of world history tens of millions of lives will be saved but we will change the course of world history all of a sudden all of a sudden you can figure out you get to see why Majority leader sign, adding that MD begins to make, make sense. Why the most common question I get, and I still get, is that why in the world would you leave 20 years of the practice of medicine where you have the privilege, you have, you are blessed, you've been given the tools by many of you of what you support here at Princeton and, and other higher education institutions that, that I've been to. You, you give that up to translate it into being a politician. 
all of a sudden the healing process comes alive. The motivation, not just for me, but the motivation of public service comes alive. It's reflected in HIV. It's reflected in being a physician back in Tennessee where I operated, uh, being a physician in Africa where I do medical mission work, and now being a physician in, in the United States the Senate. You see it through HIV AIDS, and that's why I wanted to build on uh, what Peter Bell presented earlier today because it clicks. You see the importance of this broad approach to education. Now, Majority Leader of the United States Senate, what's the most common question I'm asked? And it is very simple. It's what is your greatest challenge? Luckily, I really don't know. <laughs> I don't know yet. But let me tell you what I think it is. My answer is to compel the United States Congress to stretch our horizons. And that's hard, but to stretch our horizons to address what is, to me, a very obvious growing imbalance between the policies, on the one hand, and the inevitable, immutable demographic shift caused by the aging of America's population. The imbalance, it may not be initially obvious, but in, in a few minutes I, I want to, to be able to walk through and tell you why, when I said earlier, it's important to each and every one of you in, in the room. First of all, this demographic tidal wave, the baby boom, 1940s, after the war, fertility rates went up. So you really had demographics going, or say fertility rates going about like this, then after the baby boom going up and then coming back down. That wave is moving through and hitting now entitlement age, uh, not entitlement age, retirement age at 65 years of age. And that, that wave is going to hit starting in about seven years from now. It is imminent, it's fast approaching, it is powerful, much more powerful than any of us had previously imagined. Our policies don't reflect the realities of that baby boom. Our policymakers don't reflect that reality in the issues that we, are, we have heretofore addressed. And this is what I refer to as a long-term leadership gap. Politicians, for the most part, uh, are, 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 I was going to say for the most part, are human, but uh, <laughs> I'm scared somebody will jump up and say that. Is, but politicians, uh, for self-survival reasons, tend to think short term. On average, your next election is two years away, probably about four years away. Senators run every six years, but you only have a third running every time. So most of the people in Congress, 535 people, you have 435 running every two years, and the senators, a third of them are running uh, two years from now. So you, for self-survival, you're going to be thinking what your six million constituents in Tennessee think, if you want to stay uh, in office. And, and uh, I think people stay in office too long, by the way, but that's all right. Kind of thing. The, um, so you begin to understand that the politician, I mean, let's, let's face it, when I'm out and I'm in Tennessee and I have a, 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 um, an audience, a town meeting of people who come who care about the fact that 44 million people uninsured in their community and they're coming to me, it is hard to stretch them to be thinking about what happens in the southern Sudan where I was in January. Two million people dead, five million people displaced. That's bad. But I came to hear you, Senator Frist, because I don't have health insurance and my child is sick. I need 
to stretch. The politician has to think short term, but also, in my argument, is think long term. Let me also add something which is not quite as apparent. It's more inside baseball in, in what happens in the United States Congress, is that our, our Senate corporate institutional procedures are short term. Our budgeting process is only five years. So when we start our budgeting process here in about a month, we look at what happens both to entitlements and to non-mandatory spending, all our spending, in a period of five years. Occasionally we'll go out to ten years, but the budgeting process, all of our Senate rules are written to focus on a five-year budget window. The problem, what I just told you about this tidal wave of the baby boom coming through, which will affect every one of you, hits in seven years. And therefore, from the political standpoint, where people are thinking too short term, and from the overall standpoint of the rules, the institutional rules that have evolved over a, over a, a couple of hundred year history in, in the United States Senate, simply don't force you, don't encourage you to look outside of that five-year window. Thus, my challenge as the majority leader is to pull, and is to lead, but it is to pull the will of the United States Congress in a way that looks not just short-term, mid-term, but looks long-term. Long-term is not that long, beginning in seven years. And that long-term long vision is absolutely critical, and I'll tell you why, because of this tidal wave of the baby boom, of this burst, this surge, demographically driven in our population. Let me just break it down into three different groups. Number one, those of you who happen to be grandparents or, say, greater than 65 years of age who have come back and either to, to see a, a student who is here or come back for Alumni Day, you know better th than anyone else why Medicare is important because you saw before 1965 that we had a system itself which in which there were obvious barriers to living healthier and more productive and longer lives. You're living longer and you're living healthier. It's as simple as that. You have much better access to health care today than before when the program was enacted in 1965, this Medicare program. The Medicare program takes care of about, oh, today, 30, say, just say 30 million uh, people, 35 million people today, in, in seniors and about 5 million individuals with disabilities. That's what our Medicare uh, system is. And you've saved cost that before 1965 you actually had no protection from that could be totally devastating to you and your family. In 1963, President Kennedy, as he was laying the road with the vision of Medicare, said, a proud and resourceful nation can no longer ask its people to live in constant fear of a serious illness for which adequate funds are not available. We owe the right of dignity of dignity in sickness as well as in health. But the challenge we have is that the program was designed in 1965, and at that time, sickness was defined by acute episodic illnesses going in the hospital. And that's the way the system was designed, and the system has not really changed very much since 1965. It has not incorporated preventive care or chronic disease management. As we've lived longer, there are more and more chronic diseases. Or long-term care. There are gaps in coverage. Or the one that's hot politically, and the one you'll see me fighting about on the Senate floor again and again, that of prescription drugs. Medicare itself has not changed very much. Healthcare delivery, science, medicine, molecular biology, genetics, 
had been changing like this, and we have a, a system which is not adapted. So let's say that those of you who are under 65 but not students, there are a lot of students who are here today. So let's take this group of under 65. Why should you care about this? It's because you are the ones who are paying today for your parents today or for your grandparents in Medicare. It's a pay-as-you-go system. The cash you pay, the payroll tax, is paid out the next day. There is no, there's no such thing as a trust fund, really. Not in the sense that you think of a trust fund. The money that comes in is the money that goes out. Your taxes are coming in. Your taxes are, 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 are expended. And that works fine under relatively stable economic times. And though we don't feel it right now, in truth, the economy is fairly stable if you look over a 100-year you know, period. And if the demographics are relatively stable over time. But the problem is we have this imminent powerful surge, unprecedented in the history of this country, of this demographics of the aging of the population. If you're under 65 today, you're, you're part of this baby boom that's coming through. You will hit the Medicare rolls in seven years. The number of people uh, will go who will be on Medicare 30 years from now will go from 30 million people. It'll double. It'll actually go from 40 million people up to about 77 million people. So over the next 30 years, the number of seniors will double. It'll go from about 12% of the population today to 20%, 22% of the population in 2030. It'll go from that much of the population to that much of the population. Thus, if you're under 65, say, say you're 55, why should you be concerned? Be ready if we don't do anything to give up the benefits of Medicare today. Be ready if you have private health insurance today, say an employer-sponsored plan, be ready today it would happen actually to give up benefits like preventive care because there's none. There's none in Medicare. There is no stop loss, stop gap for catastrophic coverage in Medicare today. There are no annual physical exams in Medicare today. There are absolutely no prescription drugs on an outpatient basis in Medicare today. So when you hit 65, just be aware that you need to be ready for that. Medicare simply doesn't, hadn't, ha, hasn't kept up with the overall delivery of health care today. The last group in the room that, that I'd like to talk to are those who are, who are students or student uh, age, and why should students care today? Well, there are lots of, different, lots of reasons. First, and this is the last time I can probably say this to Harrison, because I told you so. you got to care. <laughs> yeah. Now, those of us who are parents know that it's too late. Jonathan, Brian, I'll tell you so. Maybe I can still tell you as we go through. But really, it's because in a few years, when you leave here, four or five years from now, you'll be paying a payroll tax, which is just how much money you earn as your payroll. Every month, you'll take about seven, you will take exactly 7.65% of that to support Social Security and Medicare. Now, you think that's for you later. It's not. That money is being paid out right now. You'll pay that as long as you earn a paycheck for over your next, um, although are, are, are surely are people getting jobs when they leave Princeton? Are <laughs> <laughs> we coming through today? All right. I mean, as long as you're earning money, uh, you're going to be paying this 7.65% tax. And, you know, is that too high? Is it too low? I think people are pretty comfortable with it now. The problem is it can't sustain the program long term. I told you the part of the problem is we're going from uh, 40, we're doubling the number of seniors, say going from 40 to 77 million people. That's sort of bad enough. 
The real problem is because this was a baby boom coming through is that the number of workers that are available to support each senior is going to be cut in half. It's going to go right now, four people are working to support one senior in this pay-as-you-go system. And they're working pretty hard, 7.65% tax, working, but it's working okay. But because of the demographics, in 30 years, we only have 2.3 people. These 2.3 have to work twice as hard if you're going to be giving this senior the same benefits. Why? Because nothing, nothing changes in the system, it's just the demographics. So it's pretty clear, we got doubling the number of seniors, and this is, remember this is to the students, we got doubling the number of seniors, but for each one of those seniors we have half the number of people working, thus the burden is twice as great for them to support each senior, but then really four times as great because they're having to support double the number of seniors as we go forward. Life expectancy, and I'll just add this as a fact, life expectancy, and this is great. This is what the, my business really is. Politics is what I'm doing for a period of my life here, but what I really am is a physician. And it started with my dad when I was a little boy, and, and my brother who's a physician, and my other brother who's a physician. It, the goal of it really is to improve life and make lives on an individual basis more fulfilling. And my thesis is it's no different than what I do now in, med in, in, in the political arena now. But there are certain goals you measure over the next 30 years, we will increase life expectancy. If you reach the age 65, by another 10%. Pretty amazing. Now, overall life expectancy is a little bit different, but if you reach 65 years of age, we're going to increase the number of years you're going to live by 10%. Great. It's, it's the miracles of medicine and science and, and really what I've given my life for and, and, and many of you in, in the healthcare profession in science and in research. On the other hand, it, it's a huge expense that we need to, in some way, be able to, to account for, which today, given our current policies, uh, we don't. More seniors, seniors living longer, and fewer workers to support each senior. What's the urgency of all of this, and, and why act? Why act now? Why will, you, why will you see me? There's no, let me just put it as an aside again. Majority leader sounds good. And you are the leader of the majority caucus in the United States Senate, but people assume you've got a lot of power. They assume that, that, that you know, you can just control the place. There is no power to it. <laughs> you learn quickly that there's no power. But the one thing you do is control what is brought to the floor of the United States Senate. I have, my position gives me the ability to decide what the United States of the Senate debates on the floor of that body, and thus what becomes legislation. So the priorities that you hear about, yes, are affected by my past. When I talk about Africa, when I talk about the importance of our global community at the same time as, as Medicare. But then you have to ask, what's the sense of urgency? Why bring it to the floor now? Why bring this issue to the floor now versus later? Real quickly, the demographics are fixed. You can't move the goalposts. This is not something you can shift to the future. Politicians can't play with this one. It is there. Number two, healthcare delivery is complicated. And all of you know it as you look at prescription bottles and seeing different doctors and where medical records go, what advances there are with, with, with um, taking gallbladders out today and knee operations non-invasively. The advances are there, but it's complicated complicated today as we go forward. Thus, if we're changing that system, you can't just say it's going to be changed and then have the system all of a sudden be fixed. Very different than the, than the sibling entitlement program. You've got Medicare and Social Security, the two big entitlement programs. Both are affected by demographics. Social Security is a piece of cake to fix. Now, I say that, and I say it a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but the reason I say that 
you actuarially, you can just dial in the formulas. You can just, you know, if you want to, you can increase taxes, you can decrease taxes, you can cut the benefits. You can just dial in the numbers. It's a formula. You've got the same actuarial problems, the same formulas in healthcare, but you also have the intimacy of healthcare. The, the, the desire to want the very best healthcare for your wife if she starts, if she gets cancer, or of your child who has leukemia, you're going to demand the very best. And in America, we can, in many ways, deliver the very best. You've got that intimacy, plus you have systems which have to adjust. If we truly want to integrate healthcare, and we have to take prescription drugs, and just like we did with hospitals back in 1965, physicians shortly thereafter, preventive care is not there, prescriptions aren't there, we have to integrate those into a healthcare delivery, not not nationalized system, but on individual care where you can give people individual choice in the plans that they need. They can get the care they need in an integrated, coordinated way. Thirdly, why address it now? If it's less abrupt, and again, this goes back to the politics of it, and you've got millions of seniors in, seniors in, in your district and individuals with disabilities, if you can sit down and talk to them in a non-panicked atmosphere seven years out or six years out, it takes a long time to put the system in, that you can do it in a way that's less threatening. Imagine yourself, you might be in, in uh, living with your children and you're 85 years old or in a nursing home or in a community and somebody comes in and says, we're going to change your health care from what it is and do something else for you. It is scary. It is scary. The unknown is scary. And thus, we'd have more time to both educate and talk through what is appropriate for our seniors. Less drastic, more time for the transition. What do we need today in terms of health care security? Let me just say my goal, and I won't outline what, what you'll see hopefully unfold. And I'm listening right now. Uh, broadly about what we should do. But my goal is to really change the purpose of, of, of Medicare in terms of goal, to improve it and expand it to, to giving seniors and individuals with disabilities health care security. If you're sitting, uh, when you're 85 years old, at, at the end of the day, you're, you're sort of sitting there and your biggest fear is that something catastrophic will happen or you won't be able to get the care that you need or you'll become a financial burden on your children or, or your grandchildren. So health care security, I think, is ultimately what we want to do. Number two, if you ask seniors what, what that means, it means some pretty simple things. It means good preventive care, affordable prescription drugs, protection from these catastrophic uh, events that will occur in their lives. I'm talking to all of you, remember, because all of you are going to be in this situation. You want access, a reasonable access to the technology or at least what other people are getting uh, in the United States of America. Now I'm a physician and I'm in a position to, to help bring up to date this uh, program. Uh, I, I occupy a position that allows me to facilitate the debate, and I don't pretend to have the answers as we go forward, but to address these issues in an objective, disciplined, focused, and bipartisan way. Can we do it? I think we can do it. I think we've got no chance to. I think we have no chance to continue to guarantee health care security for you and our seniors unless we address it now, outside of a crisis situation in which we'll be in seven years. Let me mention that the doctor-patient relationship is something important to me. It's important to me again because I grew up with it, watching my dad and his patients, my brothers and their patients, and me and my patients. There's nothing more intimate in terms of that relationship, in terms of coordination of care, in opening up, in dealing with issues. That bond of trust between Medicare and America's seniors to me is very much like that doctor-patient relationship. 
What, what do we need to do in terms of drugs? I think that the President of the United States has said that the starting point can be $400 billion. That's to put into a program, but if we just add that to a program in a free-for-all, I've just told you the demographics are going to bring down the system unless we act. So to add a benefit that... And people ask me, how much is prescription drugs? Prescription drugs is, I would argue, equally important to the hospital today. And it certainly will be five years uh, from now in terms of your, your lives. But seniors over the next 10 years are going to spend $1.8 trillion on prescription drugs. That's how much they're going to actually spend. The overall federal budget is only $1.3 trillion. But over the next 10 years, $1.8 trillion. We have an opportunity not just to add prescription drugs, but we have an opportunity to integrate our health care system, to integrate it in a way that seniors will have better choice. They'll have choice of integrated plans. They'll be able to have access to catastrophic care, preventive care, and prescription uh, drugs. Private health care plans must compete in this model. We must capture the dynamic of the marketplace with, with very significant regulation to keep the playing fields fair by government for those 40 million people under Medicare, soon to be 80 million people. The, the element of competition is important because it allows integration into the system, assimilation into the system of the very best health care delivery tools that we have today. It will be a system of expanded choice. The federal government is not going to force a senior to leave a program that they have now. They can keep what they have now. But remember, I just told you what it does not include now. So I'm convinced that if we offer a program similar to the type of health care that I get, the model is the Federal Employees Health Benefit Plan. I have a choice of both fee-for-service, so-called point-of-service, and other types of plans uh, every year that I can enter. And every one of those plans includes uh, prescription uh, drugs. We need to make sure that we fix the system in the sense that we don't have physicians leaving Medicare as they are today because of unfair uh, reimbursement uh, procedures. We need to make sure that seniors who en enroll in these plans, I think, if they enroll in these plans and they want additional benefits, that they need to be able to pay a larger burden of those costs, something that's not, not been done in Medicare today. If you're very rich and very wealthy in Medicare today, you can't pay the cost today. The taxpayer has to pay those costs. We've also got to guarantee real protections for, for low-income seniors by providing a very important, critical additional subsidies and support uh, uh, for them. At the end of the day, I don't know how the debate is going to work out. I can tell you it will be on the floor of the United States Senate. I hope it will be there in early March. It is clear to me that we can, can uh, address it in a bipartisan way. I hope that we can keep it out of politics and recognize that as leaders uh, in the United States Senate and in the United States Congress, we have a real responsibility to face this tidal wave, this surge that is coming uh, 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 before us. Let me close and... Um, uh, and simply say that uh, I've, I've taken the opportunity to talk about two challenges uh, based in, in part because I think they both reflect my experience here at Princeton. One is faced by our nation alone, unique to our nation, this demographic shift uh, peculiar to our nation, peculiar to our government, peculiar to the procedures that, that force us to look uh, short term the health care security, and the other is one faced by the world, this deadly and destructive tidal wave 
parallel to the demographics in, in many ways of the HIV AIDS virus. These challenges paint really dark clouds, I think, uh, on the horizon in many ways. And, and when I put them together, people start scratching their head and say, you know, what, what's going to happen to, to us? But considering their potential to do greater harm in the future, they are really just but sort of a, a gathering storm that we have today. We don't face challenges too often in this country, and I, I point the finger in part to the United States uh, uh, Congress, uh, and I can do that since, I, since I, I now represent that body. We don't face challenges too often until they become real, real crises. Uh, we have terrorism on our soil today, and, and I know we're all going through a tough time, and nobody wants to, to, to go to war today. We know we are at war on terrorism uh, today, and it's, it's uh, a parallel that we struggle with and that I struggle with, that the President of the United States struggles with. Uh, we know that there's a growing terrorist threat um, uh, today. We know that our government probably failed to recognize that there was a growing terrorist threat over the last two decades um, uh, to this country and internationally. What if we acted not to keep a crisis from happening again, but to keep a crisis from happening in the first place? And then you see what that challenge is with health care, with guaranteeing health care security, which is one of the most intimate, valuable, most personal things in, in our lives. When you think of that HIV-AIDS virus, it's devastating that it's killed 23 million people. But when I tell you for sure, it's going to kill for everyone in the past to in the future. What do we need? It needs not just me, and, and, and I just facilitate. That's my only position is to facilitate. But it really does need people such as you. And it's not just the United States of America, but it is the world. We, the people of the United States of America... Although we'd like to think in many ways we don't have a responsibility, are indeed stewards of a great republic. We elect leaders to represent our interests, which are the interests of the greatest nation in the history of the world. As I mentioned, the, the vision of our leaders is constrained by near-term forces, and that's my immediate challenge. But when the people speak, the politicians and the public servants will listen. They will act. They will address those concerns. And if compelled, they can address distant challenges before they become real crises. So in closing, I ask the Princeton family to continue to lift your eyes to the horizon and join me and so many others, both in this room and, and, and in the Princeton community, to commit the will of this great, 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 great nation to face the challenges of tomorrow. And yes, there are a few clouds, and we see them, and, and we live under them every day. But in the distance, there is a future that, and I firmly believe this, that is bright and glorious and optimistic as our past. It's just a matter of each of each and every one of us seizing it today. Thank you. I went on. I went on too long. No, but you me take one question. No,
you set me up. Thank you. that I'm a Democrat, but I think he got my vote. <laughs> I will invite you now uh, to uh, adjourn and to reconvene in Jadwin. We are, we are just at the hour, and uh, in the interests of now uh, having a chance to watch uh, our very distinguished uh, awardees receive their awards, as well as uh, the various other award winners uh, on Alumni Day, uh, we will reconvene uh, in Jadwin for the reception and the lunch. And I thank you all for a wonderful morning. Good. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.